Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Welcome back to The Critic podcast, a country on the Atlantic coast of Europe that looks outwards and establishes a global empire stretching from the Americas to Africa and Asia. Portugal has much in common with its oldest ally, Britain. In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Portugal, talks to the critic's political editor, Graeme Stewart, about how the country managed its place in the world. Professor Black, if there is one thing that certainly most people in Britain probably know about Portugal, it is that it is uh, certainly England's oldest ally. Uh, That started with the Treaty of Windsor in 1386. What was the Treaty of Windsor and why has uh, England and subsequently Britain had such relatively harmonious relations with Portugal? Well, um, good links between the two countries went back further than that. The English had played a role in the liberation of Lisbon at the time of the Second Crusade from Moorish rule. so there you're looking at the 1140s, 1146, I think. Um, and the, uh, in fact, the Treaty of Windsor, which, as you say, is 1386, built on a treaty of already of uh, 1373, which had established a perpetual friendship. And that launched a period of continuous alliance, um, reinforced by a series of later treaties, notably in 1654, 1660, 1661, 1703, 1815, 1899. Um, and there was active cooperation against uh, Castilian, uh, we would call it Spanish, with English troops there, English archers playing a very significant role in what, in effect, was a war of liberation in the 1380s, and then again, um, in uh, uh, this time musketeers, obviously, in the 1660s, and then again allied with the Portuguese against Spain in the 1700s, uh, in 1762, helping them against invasion, famously in the Peninsular War uh, from um, 1808 to uh, 1813, and uh, Portugal was our ally in World War One. And in 1943, Churchill referred to the 1373 treaty when announcing the granting to Britain of Portuguese base rights, air base rights in the Azores, which were very important in closing the uh, U-boat gap in the central Atlantic. So why are there these links? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, it's a classic example that you do not have to have a very strong cultural affinity. I mean, obviously, um, from the early 16th century onwards, England, uh, well, in fact, Scotland as well, uh, and Portugal were divided on religious grounds. Um, and uh, the Catholicism of Portugal um, was, you know, helped to give it a very different complexion uh, in political cultural terms in, say, the 18th century, when the Portuguese Cortes, the equivalent of the Parliament, didn't meet once, which was somewhat different to Parliament in in London. So it, you don't necessarily have to have a affinity that's 
in terms of ideology, but there was a strong sense of shared national interest, uh, shared national interest economically, but also classically politically. Spain tended to look, not invariably, but tended to look for alliance to France, um, particularly so in the... um, during the Hundred Years' War, but particularly so also um, during the 18th century and the early 19th century. And that helped to ensure that Britain was the great safeguard of Portuguese independence. And that was a very important relationship. But Portugal also gave Britain a base on the continent that was that of a friendly power. So they both had a mutual strategic interest. It's an interesting thing, though, really, isn't it? Because something they have in common is something that should have driven them apart. And what what, um, England or Britain and Portugal have in common is that they are uh, naval powers... Uh, intent on on global empires that that should have led to a clash as as it as it did for Britain with the Dutch and the French and the Spanish, but but it didn't with the with the Portuguese. Yes, I mean that's a very good point. I mean I think what I would say is that there developed relatively speedily a complementary character between the British and the Spanish empires. Sorry, the British and the Portuguese empires. Now the the there was a period of really not very good relations when um, the king of Spain was the king of Portugal, which was the situation from 1580 to 1640. So, for example, there are Portuguese warships in the Spanish Armada of 1588. But once Portugal has fought free of Spanish rule and the revolution breaks out in 1640, uh, once that is the case, there is a complementarity. And in many senses, British naval power um, becomes, if you like, a condition of the maintenance of the Portuguese overseas empire just as it is also to be in the 19th century of the Dutch overseas empire. And indeed, Britain plays a role in the world, um, and one that you can see right on into the 20th century, indeed in the declarations of war against Germany in 1914 on behalf of Belgium, 1939 on behalf of Poland, that Britain as a great power tends to be aligned with other powers against overmighty, as it were, expansionist powers. And in a sense, you could see a similarity today with the United States in that the United States is the guarantor of the independence of Taiwan, the security of Israel against uh, hostile and stronger uh, local powers in the case of China, for example, or Iran. And I think I think it's a very interesting thing. So the British benefited that the Portuguese developed an enormously powerful and potent empire from Brazil um, in the uh, Western uh, Hemisphere through um, uh, Portuguese Guinea, the Cape Verde Islands, the Azores, Madeira, Angola, um, Mozambique um, in Africa uh, and in African waters, and then across in India, at most classically Goa, uh, but there were a number of other Portuguese places, um, and then into um, um, into the Far East, where Portugal, of course, remained the um, the imperial power in Macau till the 1990s, and all of that in a sense, became a sort of part of what you might call the British informal empire, uh, very much linked 
strategically, economically, financially to British interests and to British security. And at the same time that Portugal is developing this extraordinary global presence, it is not much of a continental power. Um, is that really a function of geography? It's, you know, it's on the periphery of the continent and it's Atlantic facing, or, uh, or just the fact that it couldn't be a, a major power on its own because of Spain as its neighbour and, uh, as you've pointed out, um, uh, uh, sharing a, a ruler uh, in the, 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 um, the, the end of the 16th and, and early 17th century? Or, or is there something broader than that, a, a different perspective in, in port, where Portugal saw its horizons? Well, I think all of those are excellent points, and all of them play a role. I mean, history is very rarely just one fact. And let me just tell you, and I hope through you, your listeners, whenever you see a historian saying there is one reason that explains this, and you tend to get these sort of puffed on the back of books, you know they're talking total and utter nonsense. So in the case of Portugal, yes, geography plays a role, but also geography is, in a, in, in a sense, is, is a passive player. It, it's, um, there is nothing inevitable that Castile and Aragon will unite and together uh, limit Portugal. It could easily have gone another way. It could have been Portugal and Castile, um, or as we have already discussed, could have been Portugal and Spain as a whole. Um, the uh, Portugal on uh, without uh, as it were, as only itself, uh, is a minority of Iberia in terms of the both its uh, geographical landmass, but also its population, its resources, and doesn't really have an entree into the Mediterranean power politics that provides Spain with opportunities um, it, from the 15th century to develop, well, indeed, in some cases earlier than that, uh, to develop uh, a presence um, in Italy, in parts of Italy. So Portugal is looking in a different direction. Um, and as you know, the first uh, significant uh, attempt is the establishment of Portuguese power in Ceuta in what becomes, um, it's now a Spanish possession, of course, but it's in the area of Morocco in 1415. And in a way, the southward expansion of Portuguese power along the Moroccan coast and then past that in West Africa as a whole classically was explained, you know, when I was a child, again, people produced one reason and they sort of presented it essentially as an early example of mercantilism and uh, economic advantage, etc., etc. And then uh, the interpretation uh, became one um, in which the emphasis much more was on a degree of religious um, sort of quest um, to, as it were, bypass Islam to gain access to the wealth uh, of Africa and to use that as part of a, a religious campaign to free the Holy Land and sort of to bring in the second coming. And that does seem to have influenced a number of Portuguese figures, including uh, Prince Henry the Navigator. I think what one could fairly say is that it's a mixture of factors. Uh, it's a mixture of factors for all sorts of reasons. There's also the quest for adventure. There is the desire to prove a role. Um, there is the uh, habit forming. Once you start doing it, then others, fo you know, others follow suit. 
All of those factors play a role. But also Portugal, as you yourself have said when you introduced this particular question, has the advantage that it is, as it were, on the open frontier of Europe, the open um, maritime frontier of Europe. We're looking both down along the coast of Africa and also into the Eastern Atlantic, uh, where obviously you get Madeira and you get the Azores. And beyond that, uh, a combination of the two takes the Portuguese towards the Indian Ocean. Now, those are important factors. And to an extent, the Spaniards do the same. But you have to bear in mind that a lot of Spanish resource is instead focused uh, on the Mediterranean, focused on the Italian wars, focused on conflict uh, with France. And to that extent, Portugal uh, has a great opportunity in the late 15th and early 16th century because it is not involved in warfare in Europe. And indeed, one could make the same point about Britain. Britain always did better when it stood away from <coughs> European conflict, as it did, of course, uh, for much of the period between 1815 and 1914, only fighting one war in Europe, the Crimean War. And, and obviously, once it compromised itself in, by taking a, di a different position, and you know, there, we know there are 101 reasons for that, but once it did, then it found that it was very much harder to sustain its transoceanic position. And I'm wondering what effect uh, this global expansion had on uh, society within Portugal. Did it uh, open out the country more, or did the wealth it generated actually concentrate power more, more centrally, or at least in fewer hands? Well, again, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, I would say that, it, and again, what one has to look at, I mean, you know, you get a lot of stupid people at the moment making comments about the past as if it should have been a, you know, a, a variant on some student debating society today. Um, what I would say is by the standards of the period, Lisbon in the 16th century is probably the most cosmopolitan city in Christian Europe. Um, and... I think that it um, was actually a genuinely exciting city to be in. So I think that the experience of empire um, uh, operates in a way to create, um, and the fact that also, let's just add another point, that empire looks in very different directions. The imperial experience for the Portuguese um, in, say, Brazil, where fundamentally they are dealing with local peoples who are not uh, of the level of political or um, economic, social, uh, sophistication or development of those that they encounter in, say, when they turn up in India or in Ma Malacca or in, uh, in, uh, in Malaya. I think that what one has got for the Portuguese is a really interesting process of um, interacting with other societies. Now, obviously, there are aspects of it which we could find reprehensible, but it's only a naive fool who thinks that uh, empire should be some uh, monochrome process of, uh, you know, universal uh, uh, virtue. Mm -hmm. And, and was, can we speak of an enlightenment in uh, political force in society in the 18th century? How absolutist was rule within Portugal? So the Marquis de Pombal, who is the 
uh, leading minister in the third quarter of the 18th century, very much sees an enlightenment as something that, as it were, focuses on his position, but also should be used to modernize and strengthen Portugal. Now, it's not a um, as sort of famed and self-conscious an enlightenment, I think, as one could say the French one was, uh, but it similarly has interests in using the state in order to, uh, in its sense, reform society. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, that there was an impressive development. Now, there are uh, there were deficiencies uh, by modern standards. The Catholic Church remained uh, more powerful. Um, but, you know, Pombal, he wanted to reduce the political power and potential of the church. He banned the Jesuits. Um, he, um, he, in many senses, moderated the race laws uh, in quite a, uh, what we would say is progressive fashion. Um, and he used his authority uh, to try and enhance the, uh, the, the nature of that society. And what's rather interesting about Pombal is how he was subsequently used as a point of reference um, by other regimes. So, for example... Um, uh, he, he became quite a quite an interesting figure for the in the 20th century. In that, uh, uh, as you may know, if you've been to uh, to uh, Lisbon, there's a very impressive uh, monument to him, uh, the uh, the um, rotunda in so-called in Lisbon, which was unveiled in 1934. So that's the Salazarist uh, pe period, and you could argue, and the base of the monument refers to Pombal's reforms. Uh, and you could argue that here we see Salazar trying to um, sort of annex the reputation of one of Portugal's greatest ministers. Well, yes, but um, actually the plan for the idea for that monument had come under the uh, um, out under the uh, Republicans, the people that uh, uh, Salazar replaced, and they wanted to pay tribute to Pombal being an anti-Jesuit. Um, and uh, Salazar, of course, was a great supporter of the clergy. Um, whereas in turn, Salazar built the statue to honour Pombal's political strength and his concern to revive the state and the empire. And what that captured, captures is the way that the past is ambiguous. Uh, I'm glad to say, incidentally, that the modern Portuguese have not removed the statue of um, of Salazar, but then, of course, very few people are as stupid as as uh, as many people in Britain who wish to go statue busting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it, uh, Portugal suffers two significant reverses. One is in 1755, uh, when uh, Lisbon is destroyed in an earthquake, which is followed by a tsunami for good measure, and then um, in uh, the beginning of the 19th century. France, Napoleonic France, invades, and we have the uh, Peninsular Wars. Britain comes to the rescue, but the, the uh, Portuguese monarchy uh, set up uh, Rio de Janeiro as their capital during this period. How destructive were these two events? And, and is it fair to uh, shorthand them as saying that actually for a long time thereafter, Portugal didn't really recover? Well, I think it did recover from the uh, 1755 earthquake. Um, 
and you know we've already discussed Pombal. In many senses, the earthquake is the uh, is the making of him politically because of his skill and ability to to cope with the crisis. So I wouldn't say that. I would say that war and foreign occupation of much of the country um, causes a real problem in the early. Uh, 19th century. And then, as you say, you have the break with the principal uh, foreign colony, um, Brazil. But then I would think even more significant is instead of that being what you might call a clean break, as in, um, you know, some subsequent uh, loss of imperial possessions, um, you have a period of in the 1820s, 1830s of civil war, rather like the um, uh, the First Carlist War in Spain. And I think it's fair to say that it becomes really difficult um, to, as it were, re-knit a social cohesion and political order um, in Portugal in that period. And I would argue that, you know, although it's much more spectacular to talk about the earthquake in 1755 and, you know, the arrival of French troops just as the royal family scoots off to to Brazil, um, although those are much more spectacular episodes, I would say it's the long decades of the 19th century in which Portuguese governments find it very difficult to overcome uh, the frequent and destabilizing political dissension of that period. And, you know, again, that reminds us, as each of this, these countries we've looked at, you know, Spain and Italy uh, before this, that um, political failure, and I'm not using that in a term of, uh, you know, it, it can be a failure of individuals, but it can be a failure that's much broader. And that includes, I would say, of society as a whole. I mean, there's only so much, you know, societies often get the politicians they deserve or the political systems they deserve, um, um, that this can ensure that countries that were doing relatively well say Argentina in uh, for much of the early 20th century in turn uh, do rather badly and there is I think this situation that Portugal by the 1890s 1900s is in really quite a dire political situation and you get the um, the attempt by the uh, the king uh, Charles I to impose a dictatorial style government under, just to be confusing, an individual called Franco, not uh, no relation to the Spanish one. Um, and you've got attempts to, um, to try and produce some degree of cohesion, which go wrong. Uh, Charles himself is assassinated by two anarchists in central Lisbon in 1908, you know, in the great square there. Um, and the um, a, a republic, Republican revolution takes place in 1910, but that's part of a long-term sequence of instability, which in some respects goes right back to the disruption of government um, in the beginning of the 19th century. So the same sort of pattern in France, that the disruption of government 
which had been really focused on the by the revolution caused by the revolution goes on causing political instability right through to the late 19th century and in some eyes right up to Vichy um, and you could argue that the great strength of of Britain is that we had had have had that period and we have had that experience from the uh, 1640s up to, I would suppose, you could say fairly Culloden in 1746. Um, but since then, there hasn't been that situation, but one shouldn't take for granted that we have some God-given right to be governable and to be able to handle our differences short of instability. Many people in Britain will be surprised to know that, that Portugal was a participant in the First World War. Uh, what was Portugal's role? And could you also just go on to discuss the neutrality of Portugal in the Second World War, a neutrality which has been described as neutral but pro-British? Portugal entered um, World War I in 1916. Uh, the British very much had encouraged that, and in many respects it was a reflection of Britain's attempt to strengthen the blockade of Germany. Um, troops were sent to the Western Front, arriving in uh, 1917, and there were very heavy losses in the German Spring Offensives in um, April 1918, as well as fighting um, in uh, East Africa, particularly with Germans from German East Africa, modern Tanzania, invading Mozambique. Um, the war was not popular, and in fact the, uh, the government was overthrown in December um, uh, 1917 in a coup, um, and I think it's, you know, the new government continued the war, but I think it's fair to say that the war did not, it, it, in some respects, rather like Italy, um, the, war, uh, the war did not um, create support for the existing system. Now, you ask about neutrality in World War II. Well, in World War II, first of all, there's the experience of World War I, which is not encouraging. Secondly, the dictator, Salazar, uh, is very worried about Franco um, and is, is fearful that um, uh, if he opposes Germany, that um, that Spain will be encouraged by Hitler to over, you know, to overrun uh, Portugal, which is entirely um, plausible. Uh, Salazar didn't wish to offend the then victorious Germans in the early 40s. I mean, he despised fascism. Salazar. Uh, was a, um, a right-wing conservative, uh, but again, only idiots uh, think that all right-wing conservatives have the same views. Salazar himself uh, was a Catholic corporatist. Um, he did not like uh, uh, fascism at all, and he uh, um, uh, he sort of opposes the uh, what were known as the blue shirts, the national syndicalists. Um, uh, just as he opposes the um, the, the 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 left, um, and uh, what he does during the war is um, move, as you correctly say, uh, towards um, um, towards Britain. He has sympathy with Britain from pretty from the start, but he moves much more closely towards uh, Britain. Um, as the Germans uh, clearly do badly and are clearly not going to uh, uh, 
to win. Um, the um, and you know it's rather interesting. I mean, the Germans sort of, for example, pressed the Portuguese government to end the commemoration of the country's role in the First World War, and the uh, Salazar government refuses. On the other hand, alongside Ireland, Portugal flew flags at half mast after the death of Hitler. So you know, it's it's not a glorious war. But then, on the other hand, um, a lot of people were. Very uh, took very ambiguous roles in the war, and in, you know, after all, um, uh, the Soviet Union invaded Poland in 1939. Uh, many people who perhaps don't know a great deal about uh, 20th century Portuguese history would tend to bracket Salazar uh, in the same sentence as Franco, and in doing so, give the impression that the Salazar regime, which took power. Uh, following a military coup in 1926 and lasted until Salazar's death in 1970, was very similar to the regime that Franco instituted in Spain. Is it, is it wrong, Professor Black, to lump Salazar and Franco together? Well, it's both helpful and unhelpful. I mean, they're both uh, right-wing uh, dictatorial authoritarian regimes. Uh, they both, uh, to a degree... Uh, moderate themselves, if you wish to use the term, modernize themselves. Um, and to that extent, there's a strong similarity. And they also obviously have a strong uh, commitment to Catholicism. Uh, there's also a difference. Uh, Salazar comes from a very different background uh, to Franco. Franco is essentially a, a frontier fighter in Morocco, an army background, and rises to the top in military politics. Um, Salazar, of course, is a, uh, you know, he'd spent eight years at a seminary, then decides not to become a priest, instead studies law at the University of Coimbra, uh, becomes interested in finance, becomes an academic at Coimbra. Um, he becomes um, the Minister of Finance in uh, 1928, actually, I think in 1926, and then again in 1928. And then becomes is nominated as prime minister in 1932 by uh, the general who's actually running the show at that time, a chap called Carmona. So in many senses, Franco is more similar to uh, to Carmona uh, than he is to um, uh, than Salazar is to him. Um, and there is this difference. And although uh, there were similarities, uh, both regimes are hostile to communism, atheism, socialism, anarchism, democracy, uh, liberalism. Uh, neither of them like Freemasonry, etc., etc., etc. Neither of them would be regarded, I think, as particularly philo-Semitic. So, uh, you know, there are uh, similarities. Um, uh, Portugal signed the Iberian Pact um, with Franco in 1939. Uh, and yet there are also differences, and those differences are seen with um, uh, Portugal being admitted to NATO without Spain, much to the fury of Franco. Uh, Portugal was a founder member of NATO in uh, 1949. And there is a recognizable um, difference uh, between uh, the uh, the position of the two countries in their culture, political culture, in the post-war years. But, again, having said that, they are not uh, 
um, shall we say, liberal democracies on the model of, of say, France or Italy uh, in the post-war years. And what was Portugal's path to democracy in the 1970s? Salazar dies in 1970. Um, I think it's fair to say that by then, uh, and he's replaced by a chap called Caetino, um, um, I think it's fair to say that um, the government is under enormous strain as a result of the counterinsurgency wars in its African uh, colonies, um, as a result of which the government is you know, isolated both within and without. Um, the authoritarianism and in, you know, that had uh, sustained the Salazar regime was sapped by changes in society, a measure of secularization, a measure of liberalization, a measure of hedonism, all of which, of course, had developed within the ambit of the Salazarist regime. Um, um, so to my mind, uh, what you've got is a situation in which it was unlikely that the uh, situation would have continued. Um, the parallel I would see is more, uh, more one with Brazil, where in Brazil um, there had been a military coup that took in 1964 and a dictatorship took in, took over. But, you know, um, that dictatorship ended in the 80s and um, the army played a significant role, as it did in 1974 in Portugal, in helping to create the context for a major political change. Now, um, there was instability in Portugal until 76, much more so, incidentally, than in Spain after Franco dies. And there was the possibility of um, the communists doing well. There was an anxiety about that. There was anxiety about a potential uh, right-wing counter-revolution. Um, there was, I think it's fair to say, a degree of enormous uncertainty in 1975 in particular. And what was really important was the sort of rather large-scale anti-communist mobilization of popular opinion in 75, large-scale rallies, large-scale demonstrations. And what that helped to do was to, as it were, face down uh, left-wing pro-communist elements in the military, which otherwise would probably have tried to uh, hold on to power. And you get um, elections um, which help to sort of uh, construct and then strengthen a practice of actually accepting that politics can change through the through the uh, ballot box. And the other thing is that elections which reveal that the actual popularity of the communists is, is relatively modest, uh, you know, still a factor. But in, um, I think I'm right in saying uh, that in the 79 election, the communist percentage uh, which at its highest, which I think was that election in the 70s, was 18.8%. So the communist percentage of the vote in none of the elections of the late 70s and early 80s uh, approached 20%. And I think that's very significant because what it meant is that there wasn't going to be a transition from a dictatorship of the right to a dictatorship of the left. And as a result of that, you end up with... Um, 
revisions to the constitution, revisions in 82 and 89, which remove its revolutionary and socialist provisions. And you get a sort of more civilianized regime. You get one in which uh, essentially it's stable political parties of the uh, moderate left and the moderate right that become the key um, the key sort of political brokers of power and, and patronage one ought to say there's a fair amount of corruption in in Portuguese politics though not as much as in Spanish or Italian and and as a result of that it's these political groupings that remain dominant um, in the face of the economic problems of the 2000s and 2010s. And we've covered a lot of ground, many centuries in fact. I just want to end, Professor Black, with your reflections on how Portuguese society today looks back on its history. Is it with pride? Is it with sorrow? How is that global empire, which, as you say, really just ended... Uh, in the 1990s with Macau and, and earlier uh, with the Indian invasion of Goa in the 1960s. Um, how is that looked on generally and does it cast a meaningful shadow over politics today? Well, again, that's fascinating and it'd be interesting to hear what, what our Portuguese listeners have to say. I mean, my own reflection is that um, history is less disruptive as a factor in Portuguese politics than it is in those of France or Spain uh, Italy, or now increasingly, unfortunately, Britain, um, that the uh, the uh, empire, the end of empire, is not one that is seen as a matter of national sorrow nor national shame, and I think that's a mature approach to the situation, and that's despite the major conflict that was waged in the 60s and early 70s to try and hold on to empire. Um, it's interesting to see that for a while, um, the you know the late twentieth um, century, um, really there were very few people saying very much in favour of Salazar. I think the situation has changed a little of late, and uh, I think that that um, you know provides um, the, the prospect of a more complex. Uh, uh, public memory in the future, but at the present moment, I mean, I personally find Portugal a very attractive place. I find the Portuguese very attractive people to talk to, to listen to, um, and you know there are lots of problems uh, with its politics and its society. But um, you know, as I said when we were talking about Italy, it's not as though the, the same is not true, and increasingly so of Britain. And in the meantime, there is a sort of um, a, a, an ability to um, almost shrug one's shoulders, which I think is one of the great, great attributes of political maturity. Well, uh, a wonderful country and a fascinating history. Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Portugal. Uh, we must leave it there, but thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.